0: Um, Welcome, everybody. Good morning uh, to the Fourth Symposium. Uh, It's a great pleasure to uh, introduce to you Amber Carpenter and Steve Makin, who are going to be our speakers for the morning. Um, Amber is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Yale NUS and at the University of York. She's published widely on Plato and Aristotle, their Ethics and Metaphysics, and her recent book, Indian Buddhist Philosophy, came out just at the end of last year. Uh, Steve Maykin is a reader in ancient philosophy at the University of Sheffield. He too has written a lot about ancient and modern metaphysics, including, you probably know, a book on indifference arguments in ancient thought and a translation and commentary on Aristotle's Metaphysics Theta. Um, so Amber's going to begin. She tells me she's going to uh, read some uh, a version of the, the the paper that you may already have read, with with parts or. Uh, Sections probably omitted or summarized. Um, that'll take around 30 minutes. Then Steve's got some uh, uh, comments that he's going to make about another 20, 25 minutes probably. And that should leave us plenty of time for discussion. Good. Thank you, everybody. So, Thank you. Amber.
1: Good morning. Thank all of you for coming out um, rather early for a Sunday, especially after such a late Saturday. Um, I am going to read, I hope not too boringly, um, and try to hit the highlights of ethics of substance and bring out what I was trying to do in the paper there. And I'm going to start then with Aristotle's bequest. Aristotle bequeathed us a powerful metaphysical picture of substances in which properties inhere. The picture has, of course, turned out to be highly problematic in many ways, but it is nevertheless not an easy picture to dislodge. Less obvious are the normative tones implicit in the picture and the way these permeate our system of values, um, especially when thinking about ourselves and our ambitions. These have proved, if anything, even harder to dislodge than the metaphysical picture which supports them. So what is that bequest? To be, according to Aristotle, is to be a this-something, a to de ti This sets out two related demands on anything that would be a being. It must be determinate, and it must be distinct. Lacking determinacy, matter, for instance, fails to be something in particular, rather than its opposite or something else altogether. Not being a this amounts to failing to be distinguishable from all that is not this. These two criteria are no doubt related, it is in being determinately characterised that something becomes distinguishable and distinct from all that is not this very thing. What cannot be picked out from everything else existing is not really anything at all. On this picture, what it is to be, is to be a well-formed individual. Such well-formed individuals are that of which other things are predicated, but which is not itself predicated of anything else. Everything else with any claim to existence is ontologically dependent upon such substantial individuals. So qualities and relations, for instance, they do have some identity, but they, their existence, sorry, they have existence only by belonging to something properly individuated from all other existing things. For it is only thus that a quality or a quantity or a relation itself acquires the individuation necessary for existing in the primary sense. Only substances on which other things depend do not themselves depend upon others for their being. They are self-sufficient in their identity and, in conformity with the to t principle, also in their being. Now, this particular Aristotelian intuition is one, I think, that we generally share, but it's also one that is surprisingly difficult to cash out in any satisfying way. In trying to do so, we tend usually to point to that which underlies change, as being what a thing really is. And we bring together in this way, um, substance, individual, and essence. So that which underlies is going to be the essence as opposed to the accidents. So we might ask, nevertheless, what is it that operates as a constraint on permissible and impermissible changes? If we think of substance as that which underlies change or persists through change. Uh, What is it that operates as a constraint on permissible and impermissible changes on properties that do and do not belong to our candidate substance? For instance, a dog. The only thing that can function as an answer to that question, what operates as a constraint on permissible changes or things that belong to or don't belong to the dog, um, the only thing that can function as an answer is the dog itself. It's because it's a dog that this or that does or doesn't belong to it. Now, this is, of course, not informative, but neither is it meant to be. It's a point about the order of intelligibility and normativity. It's in virtue of what it is to be a dog that properties and changes count as either constitutive or accidental or impossible. Substance functions as a principle of individuation, distinguishing and uniting a one from a many, or indeed a one among a many, out of a many. We could put flesh on this by reflecting on holism. So here's a little example, to keep, get some of the abstractions down to earth a bit. Green scales, you might say, are not a property, uh, are not a possible property of anything that is a dog, because that difference would necessarily imply significant differences in dog life, characteristic, and parts. It's a feature of proper parts that they mutually imply each other in their constituting the whole of which they are parts. So this is one thing that it means to continue uh, sorry, to consider a substance as a principle of individuation. It's the logos of a thing. Its internal integrity and rationale is the thing itself. its essence. In this way, substance picks out this from all else as properly belonging to a well-formed, integrated whole, a something. Sustaining such a picture requires a distinction between essence and accident, between that which constitutes what something is, and that which merely attaches itself to something uh, with such an essence. Relational properties then fall entirely into the latter category. If it is of the essence of one thing to be thusly related to another, then its being, or its essence, is not independently discriminable or determined, and so it is not a substantial individual, and not a primary existent. Conversely, fully existing things, that is, beings, are necessarily quite distinct from each other. Where two things are not entirely distinct from each other, they cannot both lay claim to existing in the fullest sense. At least one must owe its reality to something else. Whatever has its identity constituted by its relation to another can be said to exist only derivatively, at least in that respect, Um, and in this respect has the nature of a part, it is what it is by virtue of its relation to other parts, and all of these only by virtue of the essence or nature of the whole, the substance or the being which they collectively constitute. Okay, so that's a little fast track through Aristotelian-style metaphysics. So what is the ethics of this metaphysics? I think this picture, broadly, um, is uh, a metaphysical picture is highly problematic, but it's nevertheless a seductive one. And when we turn to those beings whose existence we care about most, ourselves, of course, um, it becomes more seductive still. On the Aristotelian picture, we are primary substances. This means if I care about my existence at all, I'm concerned to preserve my well-formed individuality, distinctness and independence. What threatens such individuality threatens my being. Having properties that are my own, Properly, uh, sorry, belong to me simply in virtue of myself <coughs> and not in virtue of another, this is an existential matter. Without these, my own existence would become uncertain, shadowy, real in the way of qualities, perhaps. If I am to have real reality, robust and full being, I must be identical with that which persists through change, not with the changing and accidental properties attaching to me in virtue of my changeable social or material context. I am not my moods, but rather that in virtue of which I have any moods at all, some rational agency of pristine subjectivity, thin, self-determining, free from other characteristics, distinct from the haphazard content of my experiences. And so, too, with autonomy. Being determined in and through myself, rather than by another, is not just desirable, but necessary for my very existence. Freedom becomes vital as the freedom from external determination, the obverse of of autonomy. Thus Epictetus famously retreats to that one point of freedom, the rational will, or prohiresis, as fully constituting one's identity. In his Stoicism, we see the logical extreme of taking ourselves to be only that which underlies and persists through change, (coughs) actively disidentifying from any property or attribute which is liable to change depending upon circumstances or dependent upon another generally. And i skip the Epictetus quote, it's lots of fun, but you can read it in the full version if you like. Only rationality or rational choosing is purely self-determining and so truly free. And so that alone is my essence and what I truly am. <clears throat> Only such activity achieves being in its most complete and unadulterated sense because only such activity is in no way determined externally. Thus, Aristotle's prime mover, which is simultaneously his answer to the question, what is being as such, is pure rational activity. In Spinoza's ethics, this is identical with freedom and what all conatus ultimately aims at, in it's aim to further its existence. And in Leibniz, this is the only sense that can be given to being active rather than passive, acted upon... Uh, and externally determined. What is immensely dissatisfying about such a picture, however, is that rational activity so understood cannot distinguish us from one another. All our distinguishing marks, on the contrary, are not truly us or ours, but merely parts of a well-ordered universe. (coughs) Our rational activity itself only becomes truly our own or realises its essence as it becomes indistinguishable from universal reason. The Stoics may have picked up the becoming like God language from Plato's Theaetetus, but it takes a rare mystic indeed to want to exist in no other way except as the divine reason. And there is a phenomenological aspect of the dissatisfaction here, but I think it tracks um, tensions within the metaphysical picture. As much as we might want to exist, we want not to merge into an indistinguishable mass of reality within which we are undifferentiated from each other and from all else. I want after all that I should exist. This is not just a hungry freudian ego terrified of returning to, <coughs> pardon me terrified of returning to the womb. Distinctness is a demand that arises from the very same conception of being that pushes towards the stoic picture in the first place. To be fully or in the most primary sense is precisely not to be a part um, or an aspect or an expression of some other real individual. The pressure towards differentiation and distinction is not some perverse impulse towards the erratic and the novel. It's an existential demand, no less than freedom and independence. So the distinctness of pure rational activity becomes less convincing or less individuating um, So as as it becomes less individuating, we may try more and more to create determinacy and maintain distinctness from others through appropriation. That is, I attempt to preserve my distinctness by asserting and determining of accidents that they constitute my essence through my act of choosing. The undetermined will is still my essence, but this essence immediately implies its objects as determined by this will. And as such, these appropriations are, by extension, also me. Such appropriating becomes necessary, for without some such distinguishing essential properties, we are not beings at all. Through them, I become determinately this, and thereby distinguishable. Carving off bits of reality and declaring them mine, thus becomes a matter of self-preservation. The more our individuality depends upon appropriation, however, the more dependent and vulnerable such individuality becomes. For the objects or characteristics appropriated and identified with are, as Epictetus rightly saw, uh, themselves transient, not under my control. Independence and freedom on the one hand and determinacy and distinctness on the other seem impossible jointly to satisfy. The demands of the metaphysical picture can seem to be an irresolvable tension. <coughs> there is, a, I think... so. One problem, you might think, is is an internal tension. Here's another significant shortcoming, I think, in the ethical implications of the substantial individual conception of being. While freedom, autonomy, distinctness, and self-determination are existential values, other ethical values are not. Relational values, in particular, necessarily sit ill at ease alongside such a metaphysical picture, for emphasizing my relational nature takes me out of the category of substance. I may be a well-formed individual standing in certain relations to another such individual, but standing in this relation or in such relations must not constitute my essence. Such relations must be accidental features from which only incidental and occasional facts follow. So relational and responsive values, such as receptivity and reciprocity, kindness, care, generosity, These are difficult to integrate into a value system arising from the Aristotelian substance conception of being. If they are duties, they belong to my nature as rational, and this nature can no longer be readily discriminated from others. If they are my identity, then my essence becomes constituted by others, and I exist in that respect only secondarily, independence upon some more robust or independent being. On the social and lived level, such virtues and values merely exist alongside and indeed slightly off to one side, from the primary values, those which constitute um, existential threats if impugned or forsaken, that is, autonomy, self-determination, freedom, constancy and consistency, which altogether can be easily converted into a conception of morality which is centered on justice conceived of as universalizable ethics. Sorry, universalizable rules. And I'm not going to say much more about that connection here. This is one account of the relation between a metaphysics of substance, or of substantial individuals, and individuals as a moral ethical category. It has revealed, I think, internal tensions, as distinctness and self-determination tend to pull in opposite, or independence, freedom, tend to pull in opposite directions... And it has revealed a presumption against relational values, which are either banished to mere secondary adornments of character or else are in danger of becoming existential threats. Now, of course, one could give a different genealogical account of the value of freedom and dependence, autonomy, and so on. Uh, One that appeals to their usefulness, perhaps, um, or appeals to further values by pointing to the basic urge that everyone has to get what they want. And I'm going to return to this. Yes, I'm going to return to this at the very end. Um, The point about these virtues and values is that they take on an existential, whatever their origins, they take on an existential tinge as they arise within a context of default Aristotelian intuitions. Contrast uh, Contrast these values, the fate of these values, with the virtues of kindness, generosity, and care, Whose presence or absence is not a question of my very existence, and whose role in moral theory and in moral life has indeed often been significantly sidelined outside of theological contexts which are keen to emphasize our independence sorry, our imperfection and dependence upon God. This order and structure of values is tied to a certain conception of what it is to be, and because of that, whatever its genealogy, the inherent tensions will be difficult to resolve and the relational values difficult to integrate. Uh, so long as one is implicitly working within the Aristotelian framework, and especially with a Todeti criterion of existence. And I'm going to skip over looking at uh, an Hegelian attempt to remain both Aristotelian and relational, suggest that it doesn't work, and ask what happens if we stop trying to accommodate within the Aristotelian picture virtues and values that are essentially alien to it. What if we stop trying to remedy its internal tensions and politely look away from them? As long as we hold on to the metaphysics of substantial individuals, I suggest, we will not be able to do justice to relational and responsive values. And so I want to ask what happens when we throw the Aristotelian picture uh, overboard entirely. (coughs) So, what's the alternative? The alternative is that to be is to become. Suppose we had a different criterion of being entirely. Suppose that instead of t and that of which other things are predicated, it's not self predicated of anything else, we borrowed a suggestion from the earthborn giants of Plato's sophist and said to be is to act or be acted upon. Plato does not endorse the view and he worries in various places, in the Theaetetus, for instance, about the logical consequences of the claim. For he rightly sees stable and substantial individuality. Um, dissolves in the face of such a criterion of being. Plato, therefore, calls it becoming instead, and I'm going to borrow that locution. And with this disillusion, um, Plato fears goes the very possibility of the intelligibility of reality. Now, since Plato is no friend of the view he so succinctly identifies, I want to introduce some characters who were friends of the view and explore their position as offering an alternative to the Aristotelian one at a quite fundamental level, in order ultimately to see whether or how this might loosen the existential hold of certain values and perhaps uh, recommend others to our attention. So, The Indian Buddhists are notorious flux theorists, some more notorious than others on the whole they hold what platonic language would uh, sorry in platonic language would be called a thoroughgoing substitution of becoming for being to be is to become on most indian buddhist views i'm going to focus on the most notorious flux theorist of them all nagarjuna and his madhyamaka version of the buddhist position but to do that i want to introduce the buddhist background against which he's working so the background against which Nagarjuna is thinking and working is the early Buddhist critique of substantial, uh, substantialist categorical metaphysics. According to these Buddhists, these are the earliest Buddhists, um, actually all Buddhists on some version, the three characteristics of existence are impermanence, suffering, and non-self. And then various Buddhist philosophers competed with each other over what interpretation of these three criteria is going to give you the best theory. <clears throat> now, exactly what so that exactly what these three criteria amount to has been a matter of dispute not only within contemporary scholarly literature, but also amongst Buddhist thinkers themselves, from the first attempts to unify and systematize the Buddha's claims. The earliest attempts, called these Abhidharma, the Abhidharma Buddhists developed these criteria of existence, and the system, trying to systemize them, systematize them and think them through, developed them into a critique of categorical metaphysics rejecting the view that there are ways of being, for instance, uh, properties and relations that inhere in substances. I'm not going to tell you how they got there. I have a little bit in the paper um, about that. But at any rate, their view is there are no substances in which things inhere. There's nothing which inheres in something else. <clears throat> and this uh, means there are no ways of being. There's no qualities which inhere in substances, for instance. There's just one way of being. Reality, what ultimately exists, is just absolutely simple properties heaped together in various ways that generate opportunities to be taken by us as single, complex, individual things. Since endurance implies some measure of self-sufficiency, we should think of these property particulars um, as constantly changing, and thus they are property particular moments or occurrences or events. The third characteristic of existence, no-self, reminds us that this applies equally to us. We are, each of us, a subset of mental and non-mental property particular occurrences regarded for convenience as a unity. This interpretation of the conception of being as impermanent, suffering and non-self offers a radical alternative to categorical metaphysics, and to the ordinary way of thinking of the world as inhabited by complex objects, by unified bearers of properties which endure over time, distinct from other such individuals. Still, it is not, Nagarjuna rightly sees, radical enough, for it does not sufficiently get to the root of substantialist thinking. Think about this for a minute. While on this view nothing can be a substance in the full Aristotelian sense, a subject in which properties inhere, principle of individuation and that which persists through change, we got rid of those aspects of the Aristotelian substance, or substantial individual. Nevertheless, we are left on the Abhidharma picture with a shifting mass of simple, absolutely simple substances or basic individuals, each a discrete entity within a non categorical schema, obeying principles of distinctness and determinacy that are captured by the Tode-Ti principle. So Nagarjuna is going to try to offer a criticism of this view and offer an alternative that will truly root out all aspects of substantialist metaphysics. To understand Nagarjuna, um, I I suggested it would be helpful to start afresh with the principle that to be is to be liable to act or be acted upon. To exist is to be in relation to other existence and to be mutually affected. On such a view, some essential properties will be relational. Um, In certain respects, any existent will be what it is in virtue of how it affects or how it is affected by others. Um, But what Nagarjuna notices is this doesn't just make a distinction between essential and accidental properties difficult to draw. What in fact happens is that it makes all properties relational. If to be is to act, to be acted upon. Um, then there are no essential properties. Where this means properties that something has simply in virtue of the thing it is and not because of the nature of anything else. One of the reasons Nagarjuna offers uh, for this appeals to the criterion for existence, that is, to exist is to have a place in a causal network. This is true not only for macro objects, but for any aspect of any property of any macro object including the property particular events that were fundamental existence of Abhidharma ontology. On any level of refinement or specification, what exists depends for its existence and its nature on its place within a set of causal relations. There's no way of thinking cause at all without thinking of it as relational. To be a caused thing is to be, to that extent, essentially related to something else as cause, and this is why on the Aristotelian picture primary substances must in some sense be self-caused. Whatever exists relationally, and so whatever is caused on the Madhyamaka picture, that is, everything in every respect, does not exist as an independently specifiable individual. Not only that something is, but what it is, is determined by its place with respect to other such beings, or sorry, other such things. So there are no essences and, likewise, no ontological foundations. Now, just to the first objection, to block off, or at least respond to the first objection, (coughs) Nagarjuna is not naive about the notion of cause itself, which he acknowledges and indeed insists is liable to the very same logic. Cause is not some independently specifiable phenomenon, but the name given to the dependency relationships between phenomena, Uh, conditionally and pragmatically, as suits the situation. There is no priority that cause can lay claim to, replacing the foundational role played by substance. Any cause depends as much on its effects for its identity, meaning, and being, as it explains those effects. Indeed, language itself, if it's to serve us at all, must misleadingly present the world as populated by discrete, substantial individuals. And this is how Nagarjuna's elusive style of exposition, if you ever have a chance to read it, you'll know what I mean, um, might be taken as part of his philosophical project and even as part of the argument. Picking up on the internal tensions uh, in the substantial individual conception of being and aiming to root it out fundamentally, Nagarjuna also sees that any language and use of concepts reflects a presumption of discrete substantial individuals. In order not to commit himself to any such implications, while still availing himself of words and concepts, Nagarjuna juxtaposes uses of language in such a way that the need for flexibility becomes inescapable, so that it calls attention to the the process that we're going through in deciding how to use words and concepts in each case. Um, Note the contrast with the Hegelian picture, um, for those of you who might have that in mind. Um, There, parts retained their distinctive, if dependent, identity and so had a sort of incomplete essence by their relation to the whole. On the Madhyamaka picture, by contrast, relationally constituted becomings do not collectively constitute a unity. There is no well-ordered, clearly uh, defined individual whole of which they are parts and through which their respective identities might be fixed. There is no being to serve as the ultimate ground of more dependent modes of being. Now, one might worry about a certain incoherence in the view, even to state the criterion of existence, that is, to be is to act and be acted upon, or to have a place in a causal network, necessarily presupposes that we first individuate and then, uh, sorry, in order then to relate two or more entities as cause to effect. But, the complaint might go, individuation is already undermined if the criterion correctly describes how things are. We cannot appeal to distinct individuals in articulating the position, but we also cannot avoid doing so. The Madhyamaka is not oblivious to this concern, but in response draws our attention to the transformational quality of coming to understand being as becoming. And this is Uh, in some sense, the first intimations of the ethical implications of the metaphysics. The process of the anti-essentialist critique turns back on the essentializing presumptions that described the world... uh, Sorry, described a world of strictly delineated causes and effects, revealing retrospectively that any such designations must have been purely provisional in the first place, a way of thinking about reality which artificially divides and unifies in order to then relate perhaps for some end or purpose, but always for one that is provisional and partial. To understand the criterion correctly is to understand that the process by which we come to understand it, talking and thinking in terms of distinct causes and effects, must necessarily part of the, be part of the language and ways of thinking that is uh, to be revised and reinterpreted. So, on such a radical anti-essentialist and anti-foundationalist view, what becomes of the values that would arise from sheer commitment to existing one thing that becomes apparent on such a picture is that there's no special merit in persistence in unaffectedness or independence on the contrary all of these pretensions to self-sufficiency are marks of the non-existent of the illusory if helpful constructs of thinking sorry constructs of thinking that distort as they represent Whatever seems to persist through change, unaffected and clearly individuated, is illusory, just in so far as it seems to have these very qualities. So asserting our own self-determination, autonomy, individuality, is no longer an existential matter. Indeed, such assertions would be pretensions, but pretensions for which there would be very little motivation, since there's nothing of value one would be laying claim to by affecting these gestures of autonomy if I'm concerned with my existence and worried about what threatens it. Then, on the conception of being as becoming, I assert my existence by acknowledging my relation to and dependence upon others. I see myself in the consequences of my actions and in the conditions that brought me to it and determined it. And meaning comes not from having chosen or laying down the law for myself, but rather, if at all, from appreciating the manifold ways that individuating and relating can be deployed to good effect. In the absence of the substantial individual conception of existence, being itself becomes less important. If this sounds dreadfully nihilistic, it's because we've not yet freed ourselves from the Aristotelian picture, To suppose that being is devalued in favor of not being is still operating, we might think, within an Aristotelian conception of being. If one does not exist like that, as a substance, then one does not really exist at all. But if instead we drop the metaphysical picture, such a dichotomy doesn't come into it. On the Buddhist view, we give up the artificial value granted to stability and isolation in favor of fluidity, relatedness, and continuity. Becoming is being thoroughly, sorry, being is becoming, the other way around, being is becoming, thoroughly implicated in dependence relations for any reality it has. And recognizing this very fact is the cardinal virtue that arises from the alternative metaphysical view. Understanding existence in this way favors a holistic picture over an atomistic one, and it favors a practical and pragmatic concern with causes rather than a moralizing and blaming one who or what does one single out to hold responsible on such a view, whoever or whatever it is, we can only do so fully recognizing the mere pragmatic determiners of the choice. At the same time, the correct way of engaging with such a reality takes the form of immediate responsiveness, rather than referring particulars to general principles uh, that could only be artificial and provisional constructs. This, of course, will not get us reciprocity conceived in the Aristotelian manner, which requires first acknowledging the utter distinctness of the other um, and their alien independence from me. On the contrary, that reciprocity becomes unnecessary as the solidity and boundaries between individuals dissolves into the complex sets of various relations and causal dependencies. Likewise, I think the dangers of, of alienation, on the one hand and appropriation on the other, recede as knowing ourselves becomes knowing our own lack of self knowing ourselves as changing phenomena arising through relations to other such dependently arising phenomena. <clears throat> On the metaphysics of being a becoming as being, to be is just to be related to others. To the, to the extent, then, that I'm interested in my own existence, I might look to what is around and related to me. Only here will I discover who or what I am, and understanding these, uh, requires that I then look to their embeddedness and relatedness. So that the picture, sorry, so that the project draws one increasingly away from preoccupations with the distinction between myself and other, away from distinctions that make competition between my own good and another's good possible, and away from the notion that we exist as some pinpoint of consciousness radiating outward and on which everything else depends. Um, skip a little bit and try to say I'd promised that I would return to this objection. Um, So I've got just about four more minutes, I'm afraid. Sorry. I'll read quickly. Um, So here's the objections. We might think, okay, we've integrated responsiveness, recognition of reality, practical, outward-looking gaze. Um, Fine. Integrating that into the core of our values doesn't guarantee that the responsiveness will be kindly and the recognition as ethically inflected as we might like. Um, It might be said, after all, that violence is one response and malice is one form of recognition. Um, There are two different moves that one might make here. I think they're both wrong. You might go for fatalism, right? Um, And which I think is not an improvement. Um, Quietism is not really an improvement. Or you might go for a view that, well, it's all good because if we're all connected, then I care about everybody, which I think isn't very plausible. On the other hand, I think we might see our way around this impasse by introducing another. Um, One might prefer, and I suggested this at the very beginning, a different genealogical account of our valuing of freedom, self-determination, and so on. And so here one imagines perhaps a slightly uh, cynical, uh, sorry, a modern version of a slightly cynical cynical Thrasymachus, saying knowingly, look, we all know that what we actually want is to get what we want and not to get what we don't want. We don't need a crash course in Aristotelian metaphysics in order for that to be true of us. It's a psychological fact. That's just how we are. Uprooting and replacing the Aristotelian model of being should not be expected to have any effect whatsoever on our longing for control, autonomy, and self-determination, for these are just varieties of wanting to get what we want. Um, Even adopting modiomica metaphysics will not stop, stop me wanting to have things my way. Now, curiously enough, the Buddhists are the first to acknowledge this aspect of our psychology and its centrality to ordinary life. Their surprising claim is that uprooting substantialist metaphysics should do precisely that. It should uproot appropriating desire and uproot precisely that deep desire to get what we want and to have it our way. For the sorts of desires that make us want to control the world and value maximal autonomy... um, the thirst for freedom from any external determination, and the need to distinguish ourselves from others, these implicitly rely, say the Buddhists, on Aristotelian-type substantialist thinking. These desires rely upon us taking the world to be populated by distinct individuals, with essences of their own persisting over time, and upon conceiving of ourselves and others as just such uh, individuals. The process of uprooting this false view in of substantial individuals, is at the same time a therapy of the emotions, uh, which are retrained through an analysis of being, which discovers no foundations. And this is why responsiveness and recognition arrived at in this way imply values of generosity and kindness rather than their opposites. Malice and violence are indeed forms of interaction that desire to get what you want might take, but that motivation itself relies on taking it as terribly important and successful and good to be a distinct, autonomous, self-determining individual and relies perhaps in no small part on the fear of annihilation if one proves not to be that. Um, So skipping a bit, the the resulting picture, if we uh, we recognize that neither you or I or the world consists of such individuals, is not Nietzsche's amor fati, nor is it utilitarian calculation. It's metaphysics as ethics. In this case, reconceiving being as becoming instead of as substance undermines all values based on regarding myself as one over and against others, needing to distinguish myself by appropriation or to justify myself by appeal to impersonal reason. What survives such metaphysical therapy are the values of interconnectedness, mutual dependency, With the need for self-assertion removed, these existential values are expressed in virtues of consideration, generosity, sympathetic responsiveness, and responsibility. I exist as I am affected by others. Acts of recognition constitute who I am. I am how I respond to others, the interests I take and the effects I have, with neither the demand, aspiration, nor possibility of asserting an identity or existence independently of that. With this agonistic element removed, all that is left is care. Thank you.
2: Uh, So, thank you, Amber, for your paper, and thank you for inviting me to contribute to the symposium. Uh, I'm uh, no expert whatsoever in Buddhist (laughs) metaphysics. You can see there's not a lot of Buddhist metaphysics there. I've got basically three points to make. First of all, I want to just quickly say why what I think the interesting tension is to which uh, 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 Amber has pointed. And then I want to ask whether there really is a tension between the Aristotelian metaphysics of substance and uh, a concern with with, with one's uh, continued existence. And then I want to ramble on a bit about what would happen if we were to adopt a Buddhist metaphysics of flux and various puzzling things that that gets me to, Uh, well, I wouldn't dignify dignify them with the word thought, but to say. So here's my sort of take on on, on, on essentially what what, uh, uh, Amber's saying. It ought to be the case, you would imagine, that your metaphysics and your ethics should align with one another. So that if you value something, because you value your continued existence, if you do, then... The fact that you value that, rather than something else, should align with what you take your continued existence to be. So if I value health, because I value my continued existence, and I value health rather than an ascetic subjugation of the body, that should align with the fact that I take myself to be a physical being, rather than a mannequin spirit merely attached to the body. They should fall in line with each other. So, Amber's pointing out, so that sounds right, that sounds exactly right. Amber's just pointing out a much more rich and, and, and interesting example. Uh, and so, Amber's thought is that uh, if I am implicitly committed to a kind of Aristotelian, she puts it, toddy tier kind of metaphysics, then that's likely to generate in me an interest in values like autonomy because those values, like autonomy and self-determination, are what align with the Aristotelian metaphysics. Then there's a little bit of a problem because, as Amber points out, we're all co-specific. My essence and your essence are all the same. So, there now seems a problem, which is how I can be concerned with my own existence and take that existence to consist in the persistence of my essence and not my relational properties while acknowledging that the difference between me and Amber lies precisely in our relational properties. What's interesting about my life, rather than your life, is that I've got these friends rather than those friends, these projects rather than those projects. But that's no part of my essence. They're merely merely, uh, relational accidents. My existence doesn't consist in those things, but my existence and my concern with my existence should align with my view of existence. So this seems to be a bit of a problem. That's where I take the difficulty to be. Uh, okay, so the first question, uh, so I just want to ask two questions now. One is and it's a rather naive discussion of this point. Is there really that tension? Is there the, the tension that, that, that Amber's pointed to? Uh, and To do that, I've got a whole load of silly little examples to talk about. So your first thought is presumably, look, I don't really see, someone's first thought might be, I don't really see why this is that problematic, someone might say, because of course it's true that if I value my continued existence, and for my continued existence, so for me to continue to exist is to be autonomous and self-determining, even if all that's true, Of course, what I'll value is some particular instantiation of my autonomy, some particular choice of a particular life, some particular way that I've determined how things are going. And so I was imagining that the sort of question that Amber's pointing to is essentially whether the first three of those claims are in any sort of tension with each other. So the first claim is, I value my continued existence because I value this life. That's just intuitive. I value my continued existence because I've got friends. I mean, if only I did have. But, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'll make one one day. I value my continued existence because I value this life. Second thought, it could have been the case that I existed without its being the case that I valued this life. That's what the Aristotelian metaphysics gives you. Third thought which is meant to, as it were, dissolve the tension, that's okay, because if it had been the case that I'd lived that life, then I would have valued my life because I valued that life. And those, you might think, are perfectly consistent with each other. And if they're consistent with each other, then there isn't the tension that Amber's pointing to between uh, uh, the Aristotelian metaphysics and concern with my specific relational Uh, 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 instantiation of my autonomy. So that's that's why I think one to three are, as it were, the the sort of paperback version of what's going on. Okay, one to three, I imagine, uh, if you want to find out whether they're intention, What's interesting is that underlying them is a little scheme of explanation, namely the AB pattern. So I'm now interested in pairs of claims of the form as A and B. So A is a claim that I value X because I value Y, and B is the recognition that I could certainly have secured X without securing Y. And the question is whether they stand in any tension with each other, those two answers to the question, why do you value, uh, why, why do you value X? I mean, wiser people than me will know that we we're unlikely to get anywhere with this question because the notion of because and causes and explanations is so rich and varied and whatever. Uh, so, 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 it's a, so we need to focus down on a few examples. There are certainly lots of cases, A1 and B1. Uh, sorry, sorry. So, so A1 and B1 is the case I'm interested in. A1 and B1 is the case where someone says, I value continuing to exist because I value this life. Although, of course, I could have secured a continued existence without securing this life. I might not have had children. I might have got a job somewhere else. Someone might have been my friend. So is there any tension between A1 and B1? Now, there's obviously loads of cases of the form A A and B between which there's no tension whatsoever. Yeah. so take a, a sort of perfectly okay pair of claims these are cases where you value something because it's a non-fallible means, beg your pardon, it's a non-infallible means to something else, fallible infallible, It's the kind of attention to detail you get from me uh, the, uh, uh, non, so suppose I value purchasing a lottery ticket Because I value a lottery win, there's no big value in having a lottery ticket by myself. Still, that doesn't stand in any tension with the thoughts that I realize that I could have secured a lottery ticket without securing a lottery win. I just buy a lottery ticket and it doesn't win. There's no problem there. And the the reason there's no problem, obviously, of of course, is that buying a lottery ticket is just a non infallible means of getting what I value. I've got to buy a lottery ticket if I'm going to have any chance of winning. And that's why I presume something like that kind of case is okay, and there'll be thousands of them. But Amber's case, of course, isn't like that. It's not that my living this life is a possible outcome of living a life. It's not that I live a life and then, as it turns out, it's this one. It's living this life is my way of living a life. It's how I live a life. It, it, it's different from the lottery ticket case. Winning a lottery ticket is not a way of buying a lottery ticket. It's a post facto consequence of it. Living this life is my way of living a life. Yeah. So let's try and think about cases which are more like that, where doing one thing is your way of doing another. Yeah. So here's the an example uh, which is sort of meant to be sort of, ba- sort of babyish example uh, number three we're on to now before I get on to the final one. So here's the thought: I'm playing some kind of primitive card game. I'm just drawing cards out of a pack and, and going yay boo yay. But you know, and so you're reading my preferences off. You're reading off which kind of cards I prefer as I get them. And what I claim is, and you notice that my face lights up when I, when I draw red cards. And you ask me why I value red cards. And I say that I value red cards because I value diamonds. That's what's valuable about red cards to me. But you also notice that, well, in fact, you ask me whether I would have valued the red cards I, I, I beam at if they'd been hearts. Suppose I say, yeah, sure, I, can, I value red cards, and I claim that I value them because they're diamonds, but of course I recognize that I could have got red cards, the cards I claim to value, red cards, even if they hadn't been diamonds. Those two claims do sound intentional, don't they? You feel like saying, no, A1's, A2, beg your pardon, A3, is basically false. If that were the case... If you would have valued those red cards just as much had they been hearts, then it's not true that you value them because they're diamonds. You value them because they're red. Yeah. That sounds, at least to me, a strange kind of example, someone who sis- insists that they value red cards because they value diamonds but also acknowledges that had those red cards they picked been hearts they would have equally valued then, doesn't seem to me to be someone of whom A3 is true. They don't really value red cards because they value diamonds. They value red cards as such. What's the relevance of all this, you're thinking? Well, okay, now you just apply it to the case Amber's interested in. Uh, suppose, I have some, suppose I had some children, uh, and suppose I claimed that I value having a child because I value having a daughter. I value her, Harvin, uh, uh, my daughter. So suppose I claim I value having a child because I value having a daughter. And then, of course, I say, of course, that's an accident. The fact that I've had a daughter is an accident. I could easily have had a son. And if I'd had a son, I would value having a child because I had a son. Or that's what I'd say. I mean, it would be my son, Nigel, rather than my daughter, Harvey. But if A3 and B3 stand in a bit of attention, then it looks to me like A4 and B4 stand in a bit of attention, a bit of attention. I mean, if it's really true that it would have made no difference to me had my child been a son or a daughter, I would have valued them equally. Then it just isn't true, you can, it kind of undercuts A4, that I value having a child because I value having a daughter. What I value having is a child. And it turns out that this way of having a child is having a daughter. Yeah. And now we just apply all this to Amber's case. I value existing. Yeah. And, I intu- and that's what the Aristotelian metaphysics gives me. I value my autonomy. The way I've exercised my autonomy is living this particular life. But of course I recognize that the beauty of autonomy is that I could have lived any other life. And if I had lived any other life, I would have valued that life, or some subset of those lives. I would have valued other lives just as much as I value this life. And if if, if A1 and B1 do stand in a similar sort of tension to A4 and B4... And if indeed A4 and B4 do stand in attention, then it looks like I, 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 I agree with Amber. There does seem to be a, a, a problem there with the with easy response. You value your essential properties. So uh, your continued existence is the continuation of your essence. But what you value is the particular accidental way in which it's performed. Uh, or instantiated, which was meant to be the easy way of dissolving the puzzle, doesn't really, I have not thought about it a huge amount, but doesn't really seem to dissolve the puzzle. There seems to be something genuinely interesting, uh, a a, a, a genuinely interesting tension there. So I agree with Amber that there is a tension between, uh, the the tension that we started off with, between the Aristotelian metaphysics, which emphasizes the essential non-relational properties of things as constituting their existence, and your concern with relational, specific accidental relations. So I think Amber's dead right on that and that's a very interesting thing to point out and and, and I'm sure people will have lots to say about that. Second sort of big point, I mean you might not have have noticed that that was a big point. That's a big point as points made by me go. Uh, Second big point... Volume 2 of my forthcoming book. See, I'm losing the plot now. Now I'm getting overconfident. <laughs> uh, so now I'm thinking uh, I'd like to say something about uh, what, uh, what Amber said about the uh, effect that, that, that uh, would be had on our ethical thinking if we adopted the kind of flux theory that, that Amber describes in the Buddhists. Uh, I know nothing of Buddhist philosophy, so, so I, I, I can't I speak with no authority here and no knowledge. Uh, so I'm going to descend on. Almost instantly to a silly little example. Uh, I, I, interestingly, in a way, the example I want to descend to is a meant to be a variant of another aspect of Aristotle's ontology. So of course I'm completely correct that for Aristotle to be a substance is to be a, a, a self-determining today, an individual this. But substances are not the only things in the Aristotelian world. Right down at the other end of the scale of being, as it were, there are simple material stuffs. Earth, air, fire, and water. Or if we might say, the chemical elements. earth. But let's go with earth, air, fire, and water. And earth, air, fire, and water, according to Aristotle, are completely homogeneous. That's, that's to say they have no internal structure which makes them earth, air, fire, and water. They're just earth, air, fire, and water all the way down. What makes them earth, air, fire, and water is that they've got various interactive properties. So to be uh, fire... I had to write this down in a seminar once on Generation and Corruption. I had to write down the, the properties of the four elements. That's pathetic. Uh, fire is what? Hot and dry. And, and uh, water is cold and wet. And to be hot is to do certain things to other things. And to be dry is to preserve your boundaries. And so, so these elements are described in purely relational terms, kind of like, kind of like what I'm imagining the, the flux theorists might be getting at. They've got no intrinsic structure, they've got no individuality. To be these things is to interact in certain ways. What would be the consequences of that uh, if if we try and think through the difference that would make to our interest in the persistence of something like earth, air, fire, and water? I mean, we're not interested in their persistence, but suppose we were. Suppose we were living in a world, essentially, of homogeneous fluids which had no internal structure but interacted with each each other and were characterized in terms of their interactions, like a a huge version of the Aristotelian four-element world, and there's nothing else in it. So here we've got a world of things which are characterized by their interactions, and to be Earth is to interact with a certain way with something else and now here's, the and now a question strikes one because what Amber's got you know rightly got us interested in is questions of existence and continuation of existence so let me see if i can think this through i, I rapidly run into puzzles here so suppose you consider petrol consider the stuff sort of petrol and suppose you 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 take it that that one of the Uh, interactive features which render something petrol. One of the the, uh, interactions involved in being petrol is, for example, combusting at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Suppose you think that's part of what it is to be petrol. And you don't think petrol's got any internal structure apart from that. That's just what petrol is. Just like earth, air, fire, and water. And now the question comes up, what do you reckon happens to some petrol when you set fire to it at 400 degrees Fahrenheit and it burns? Do you reckon it's ceased existing? Or do you reckon it's carried on existing? Now, I simply, my, the, my answer to this is, I don't know, I'm not intelligent enough to think it through. But I can see things pulling me in two different directions. If someone says to me, look, what it is to be petrol is to burn at 400 degrees Fahrenheit, then it sounds pretty strange to say that when something does burn at 400 degrees Fahrenheit, it stops being petrol. I mean, you'd think, that's what it is, petrol. That's what petrol is. You've only got the intuition that it stops being petrol because you think of burning as the disruption of some internal structure. But there is no internal structure. This, that's, all there is about petrol is that it's got these properties. Yeah. So on the one hand, you feel like saying, well, if that's, all, if that's all it was to be these interactive stuffs, then none of them would ever go out of existence. All they do would be do the things which render them the things they are. So in that world, to be petrol will be to burn at 400 Fahrenheit, burn it at 400 Fahrenheit, and then you've got petrol. You're not going to be able to destroy petrol by doing that. On the other hand, of course, you might think quite the opposite conclusion follows. Yeah. There just is no persistence in this world. Uh, it, it, it's not that the cha- if you identify stuffs in terms of their changes. On the one hand, the thought might be as they change, they exist because that's what their existence is. The other thought might be as they change, they stop existing because they have no internal structure and they've moved on to something else, which will, will, will which will react in different ways. So I genuinely am sort of puzzled as to what one might think. I mean, no surprise, because I know nothing about the, the Buddhist thoughts, but I'm genuinely puzzled about what one might think in a world described in terms purely of interactions about the fate of things which undergo those interactions, whether that's a world, as it were, of incredible constancy, because things just do the things which make them the things they are, or whether that's a world of incredible inconstancy, because everything's always being turned into something else. And that seems to be an interesting kind of question. It it, it seems an interesting kind of question. And I I don't know the answer to it, but it seems connected with what Amber's talking about in The Flux Theorists, and whether The Flux Theorists... Can or should or would have an interest in continuation of existence. So, 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 so that was my contribution to that. Uh, and I figure that that must be me, me out of time, James. I think. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, a lot less learned than Amber's. A lot less good. Thank you very much, guys. <clears throat>